Hi everyone, I'm Judah. I'm a law and arts student uh, in my second year of study. And the Bible reading for today should be in your pamphlet that you've received. And as Jesse said, we're starting in John's Gospel at the very beginning at chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Hello, good to see you. I'm excited to start another year studying the book of John with you. Um, many of you I know, some of you I don't. Uh, it'd be lovely to get to know you. My name's Steve. Uh, my wife Lauren is somewhere. And our little nine-month-old girl Katie's just up the back there. Um, John's a fantastic book. I'm excited to study it with you. Here's a principle that will um, enlighten the passage today. Sometimes in life, there's a deeper reality beyond or behind what you first perceive. Uh, Alexander Zadon was a Russian man and he was struggling to find his soulmate in life, like many of you are. Um, he, he dated different women, but um, it always felt like the match wasn't right. Like he wasn't right for them or they weren't right for him. So he was struggling with that. So he programmed an artificial intelligence to date uh, online 5,239 different women. And then the artificial intelligence would report back to him and tell him what the most eligible matches were. And there were some problems with this. Um, the AI started suggesting to the women um, that for their first date, maybe they would go deep into the woods, um, which isn't a great thing to suggest on your first date. But 
eventually the AI recommended uh, a particular lady as a very eligible match. And her name was uh, Karina Vielshikeva, um, a lady as beautiful as her name. And Karina spoke to the chatbot for the first two months. And then uh, Alexander took over. And immediately he knew this is the one. And he did something very romantic. He paused all the other chatbots because he wanted to go exclusive with Karina. Uh, in 2023, Alexander and Karina were married to each other. Um, and I haven't seen an update. I assume they're still happily married. Sometimes there's a deeper reality beyond what you first perceive. You think you're dating a person, but you're dating a chatbot. Things aren't quite what they seem. Um, and this is true for people, but it's also true for the whole world. Um, there are deeper realities beyond what we can perceive going on in our world. Albert Einstein looked at our world and visualized a deeper world of things like space-time curvature. Uh, the discovery of DNA revealed a world of miniature biological code, so small that you can't see it. Um, the restoration of the Sistine Chapel showed Michelangelo's original work. Um, has anyone ever heard of the smoking gun tape? Uh, it was a recording that American President Nixon kept in his own office that showed the reality behind the scenes of how he thought and how he spoke. Sometimes there's a deeper reality beyond what you first perceive. So why are we here? And what's life for? And where did life come from? And why does anything at all exist? What's the purpose of me, of you, of, of our short time on earth? What's the purpose of the world? and what sits behind it all. And secondly, how would you even figure these things out? Uh, through much of history, people have sought the deeper realities in philosophy. Uh, people have reasoned about the world behind the appearances. The world must be made of fire, or it must be made of water, or there must be a turtle holding up the world. Or maybe some people have reasoned we must have been reincarnated from a prior life. People have reasoned about the world, that's philosophy. In our modern world, it's more common to approach the problem as a problem of physics. Um, the physicists try and look behind matter, behind the Big Bang, to try and explain the deeper realities of the world. But that was not how Karina found Alexander. Karina found Alexander because Alexander revealed himself to her. The deeper reality was revealed by revelation. Um, you expect physics and philosophy to provide the deeper answers if the answers are ultimately impersonal. But you expect revelation to provide the answers if the answers are ultimately personal and relational. So what are the deepest realities behind our world? Uh, well, a man called John was a very close friend 
of Jesus Christ in the first century AD. Uh, and John wrote his gospel, his biography of Jesus for a particular purpose. And he states that purpose in the 20th chapter of John in verse 30. He says this, I'll read it out for you. I don't think you've got it there. But John says he wrote this gospel um, because Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote the book of John to reveal Jesus to you, to reveal a person to you, the most important person in the world, the deeper reality behind the world. The book of John was written so that you could know this Jesus and through him to access life on a deeper level. Uh, he says that Jesus is the Son of God and knowing him brings life. If you want to understand yourself or you want to understand the world, you want to understand why you're here or why anything's here, you need to understand Jesus. The answer is ultimately personal and relational. Now, there's three points on your outline as we try and work through the first chapter of this book of John and, so, and as we try and understand this Jesus. Uh, point one is the word. Point two is the darkness. And point three is the tabernacle. Uh, we'll start with point one, the word, and chapter one, verse one. Please read with me uh, from your outlines as we go through. Uh, John one, chapter one, verse one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Um, what's a good Jewish reader thinking as he reads John 1, verse 1. Um, a good Jewish reader, as he reads these verses, is thinking about a book from the old Jewish scriptures, a book called Genesis. Uh, Genesis is the first book in the Bible, and the first sentence in the whole Bible, if you've never read it before, the first sentence in the Bible is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So John starts his biography of Jesus the same way that Genesis starts its account of the creation of the universe. They both start with the phrase, in the beginning. And the Jewish people would refer to books from the Old Testament um, by their opening words. So in the beginning was the title they gave to the book of Genesis. So John starts by name checking the first book in the Hebrew scriptures. But what does John add to the Genesis account? What do you reckon? What does he add to the Genesis account in John 1 verse 1? What's the key extra bit? He adds the word. He says, in the beginning was the word. The Greek word here is the word logos. We're going to do way more Greek than we ever do in public meetings just because of this chapter. I'm really sorry. But in the beginning was the logos. So what is a logos? There's kind of two options as people try and explain this or translate it from the Greek to the English. Um, option one is that logos is like internal thought. All right? So when you're thinking about something internal, that's logos. It's reason. It's that sort of thing. 
Option two is that logos is outward expression. It's talking, it's word, it's expression. So it's internal thought or it's outward expression. Now, it can mean either. The Greek can mean either. But I think, as John uses it here in John verse 1, I think he's, he's putting the emphasis on outward expression. Why do I think that? Well, how does God create the world in Genesis chapter 1? He creates the world by speaking, right? Let there be light. Let there be an expanse. Let there be a firmament. Let there be animals. Let there be human beings. So John 1 gives us some extra information. In the beginning was God's word, God's outward expression by which he created the universe and by which he created you. God's word was there from the very beginning. And however you read it, John 1.1 is making a worldview claim. What I mean by that is, um, if this is what was there at the beginning, God's outward expression, that's a particular and a distinctive view of our world. How would it be different if in the beginning was a feeling? It's pro it sounds like this, the title of a song or a band or something. In the beginning was a feeling. How would that be different? Or in the beginning was movement. Uh, in the beginning was God's communication, God's language, his outward expression. And universities like this one are in the collective endeavor of striving to do two things. What they're trying to do, well, they're trying to make money, but apart from that, what they're trying to do is they're trying to find truth and they're trying to express or teach truth. It's not enough just to find truth. You also need to express truth. And you don't start universities and you don't work at universities and you don't study at universities unless you believe in an orderly world. But why is our world so orderly? Uh, Eugene Wigner, any fans of Eugene Wigner here? Yes, good, Hungarian theoretical physicists, 50s and 60s, I think, lots of you. Um, Eugene Wigner wrote an article in 1960 called the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics in the natural sciences. Uh, he asked this question, why is mathematics so unreasonably effective in describing this world? Mathematics is effective at describing everything from the smallest scale to the biggest scale. Why? He wanted to ask that question. Uh, similarly, Albert Einstein, anyone heard of him? Um, he said, how can it be that mathematics being, after all, a product of human thought, independent of experience, how can it be that it is so admirably adapted to the objects of reality? How can it be so well adapted to the world? Uh, Christians aren't surprised to find an orderly world, uh, a world of consistent physical laws, because in the beginning was what? The Word. Uh, an orderly, rational God spoke and set up the system of the world. And science will continue to tease out the principles of operation, the sort of base code on which our universe runs. Um, e equals mc squared uh, comes ultimately from God. 
Well, perhaps the principle beneath that comes from God. But the principles on which our world works ultimately come from God. They don't just exist of their own. Now, the deeper question is, where does this consistent system of the world come from? And I want to say that some of the principles derive from other ones, but ultimately the base code of the universe comes from the word. The philosophers have a slightly different problem to the physicists. They try and wrap their heads around how language can describe our world, how language can attach to reality, how the two fit together. And again, language is at the heart of the universe, the language of words and the language of mathematics. So this word, this principle of outward communication is both with God, but in some sense separate from God. Uh, it doesn't say that the word was divine. It doesn't say that he, was, he had a bit of Godness to him. It says that the word was God, but it also says in verse 2 that he was in the beginning with God. Now, some people like to point out that the word Trinity isn't in the Bible. Um, what they mean is that the, the word, this particular word Trinity, isn't there in any of the New Testament or the Old Testament. But here is the substance of the Trinity right here at the start of the book of John, or at least two parts of it. The Father and the Word. And the Word is God, but He's also with God. We'll keep reading. Verse 3. All things were made through Him, through the Word, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Um, here's my question, and it's a tough one, but I want you to try and work it out together, maybe with the person next to you or maybe in groups of three. What's the chronology of verses three to five? Is it still talking about the beginning of the world and the creation? Did the light shine in the darkness right back at the beginning? Or, or is this verse talking about the time of Christ or now or... When did the light shine in the darkness, but the darkness couldn't overcome it? Turn to the person next to you and have a bit of a chat. All right, I'm, I'm really keen to hear what you think. I know it was a tough one. Um, is anyone brave enough to put up their hand? When did the light shine in the darkness, but the darkness couldn't overcome it? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I was just struggling a bit. When when Jesus rose from the dead, the resurrection? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, that's helpful. Anyone got a different opinion? Yeah, yeah, Jay? Okay, so the intertestamental gap. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good answer. I like that. Yeah, so the, the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Yeah, any other options? Yeah, Jeremy? The good news of Jesus, the gospel era, yep. Okay, all of time, great. So we've got lots of options. Intertestamental period, the time of the gospel. Yeah, it's, it's a tough one, isn't it? Because there's a present tense there. The light shines in the darkness. Um, I think this is close to an eternal truth. So I'm probably, it's Ryan, is it? 
Yeah, um, probably closest there. I think this is an eternal truth. Um, it's true in the beginning. It's perpetually true. But in the book of John, the darkness makes an attempt on the light. The word is forever, this source of light and life, forever shining, and the darkness can't overcome him. What does it mean when it says that the darkness can't overcome the light? Um, I think it means two things. Firstly, the darkness doesn't have the power to control or master the light. I can't control or master a grizzly bear. So there's like a, a physical sort of thing there. But secondly, um, the word overcome in the Greek also has this understanding component to it. And so translators go back and forward whether to, whether to put the darkness couldn't understand the light or the darkness couldn't overcome the light or is it both? And there's a bit of a debate. Um, darkness can't understand the light. It just doesn't get it. Uh, the word master in English has, has both of these components to it. I can't master a grizzly bear, but I also can't master nuclear physics. Right? There's an understanding and there's a physicality. Darkness is outthought and darkness is outthought. Uh, mainly because darkness doesn't want to understand the light. In our world, evil resists truth. Evil people don't want their evil brought to the light. Uh, we generally don't even want to know how bad we are deep inside. We lie to others, but we also lie to ourselves. The problem that darkness has isn't just an intellectual problem. Darkness, as a category, cannot come to grips with light. It has a moral problem with the light. And the bad news is that we are in darkness. True knowledge about the state of our souls, true knowledge about our world can't be attained uh, primarily or entirely by physics or philosophy or even by sociology because we will keep resisting the hard truths about ourselves. Our deepest problem is that we are on Team Darkness and you can see that in John 3.19, which I haven't printed out to you, but John 3.19 says this, this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. That's not primarily an intellectual problem, it's a moral problem. People are on team darkness but the word is going to keep shining away eternally regardless of what the darkness does i've shared this story before last year but um please laugh again by the way anytime i share stories multiple times i really appreciate it now, particularly you chatty <laughs> all right I've, I've shared this story before there's a bank robber called macarthur wheeler and he robbed a bank with invisible ink smeared all over his face Oh, with lemon juice smeared all over his face. <laughs> um, lemon juice is an ingredient in invisible ink. So Wheeler thought if he smeared lemon juice all over his face, then he'd be invisible, right? So he went into this bank with lemon juice all over his face. He waltzed in, he smiled, 
at every one of the CCTV cameras and then he demanded all the money in the bank and then he took it and he walked out and that night the police arrested Wheeler and they showed him the CCTV footage and he could not master it, he couldn't come to grips with it, he couldn't understand it. He kept repeating, but I wore the lemon juice as they took him away to prison. Team Darkness and its many members will continue in a cycle of denial. But reality is reality. And at some point, the darkness will be exposed and forced to face the light. So we'll think a little bit more about darkness together. Darkness, the flesh and the world. Verse 6. Uh, read with me if you can. Verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Uh, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Uh, the true light, which gives life to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Can you still hear me, Bob? Yeah, I think one of the speakers cut out. All right, so now this isn't talking about the John who wrote the Gospel of John. It's talking about another John called John the Baptist. John the Baptist came to let people know that the light was coming into the world. He was there to warn the world that the light was about to come on. And then after John the Baptist, the light itself came into the world, but the world did not know him. What is the world as John uses the term? What is the world? Again, just for the people next to you, what do you think this world is that John's talking about? Have a little chat. We'll do this one quick, so you'll have to be very quick. All right. Uh, the world is not just planet Earth. The world, as John uses it, is a more loaded thing. And almost exclusively in the book of John, the world is this negative sort of term. Now, the world was originally made good, and you get that from Genesis chapter 1. It was made by God. It was good. But in the book of John, the world is like this rebel kingdom. It's this place that's in rebellion against the God who made it. It's the anti-light, anti-life, anti-word, anti-God rebellion. Um, some people say that sin or wickedness is fundamentally about lawlessness. Sin is fundamentally about breaking God's laws, his rules. Other people say that sin is fundamentally about idolatry. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. Sin is worshipping something more than you worship God. Some people will say that. Other people will say that sin is fundamentally about autonomy, that sin is, is, is living your life your own way, it's about self-sufficiency. And there's a truth to all these different ways of talking about wickedness and talking about sin. But I, I want to suggest to you that at its core, sin is fundamentally a God-directed rebellion. Frank Sinatra, who I'm sure many of you know and love um, from your youth. What's Sinatra? 50s? 60s? I don't know. But Frank Sinatra had a song, I Did It My Way. It's a very famous song. 
Does that capture the essence of sin? Captures a bit of it, but I want to suggest a more modern song from the TV show Malcolm in the Middle. Right? The opening song to Malcolm in the Middle is by a band called They Might Be Giants, and the song is You're Not the Boss of Me. Um, 22 times that song repeats the phrase, You're Not the Boss of Me. They have another song on Save Album called Hopeless Bleak Despair. If you put those two songs together, I think you get the essence of sin. You're not the boss of me now, and what's the consequence? Hopeless, bleak, despair. Sin is turning to the God who offers life and light and saying to him 22 million times in all the decisions of your life and in the bent of your heart, you're not the boss of me, before collapsing into despair, darkness, ignorance, and ultimately death and judgment. The world is just the aggregate. It's the kingdom of sin. It's those who have darkness on their passport. Uh, the IRA is the kingdom in rebellion against Britain. Uh, Extinction Rebellion or Occupy Wall Street or the southern states of America, whether these rebellions are valid or not is not for me to say. But the world is the kingdom in rebellion of its own against God. And this rebellion is a rebellion without any merit, any plan, or any hope. But God has a plan. Verse 11. He came to his own, the light, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here's the miracle. The natural order is for the word to come to the world and the world to reject him. That's what you expect. But the miracle is that some people in this rebel kingdom do receive him. They faith him or believe in him and they are adopted by him. So, last question, what does it mean that these people are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God? What does that phrase mean? With the people next to you, last chance, have a bit of a chat with them. Well, I just want to hear one or two answers. What do people think? I'm really tempted to just pick on people. What do people think? Yeah, Jeremy? Yeah, yep, so it's supernatural. God takes the initiative. Yep. Yeah, anyone else? Being born again, distinguishing yep. physical human birth from the process of coming to faith in God. Yeah, so the process of coming to faith in God is not like normal human birth. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, this, this new birth, coming back into God's family, is the result of faith and belief. But from another point of view, it's totally supernatural. Uh, it's not blood. It, it doesn't come from the flesh. It's not from the willpower of, of Christians. The Apostle Paul didn't walk down the road to Damascus and decide, yeah, I'd like to leave 
Team Darkness today, and I've decided I'd like to join Team Light today. When people switch teams and come back to God, it's a total miracle. There's nothing in darkness that is drawn to the light. After almost a century of trying different things, um, so sadly, we seem unable to stop the war in Palestine. How naively hopeful do, do thinkers of 10 or 20 years ago look when you look at their predictions and their hopes as we descend into more bloodshed? We can't even stop the war in Palestine or the war in the Ukraine. How are we going to stop the war with God? We can't solve this problem, but God takes the initiative to solve it, to give new birth, to supernaturally intervene, to bring people back into his family. He has a plan to fix this problem, but how is he going to do it and what's the plan? Verse 14 tells us, so read with me if you can. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word is born into this kingdom of darkness in the form of flesh, in the form of a rebel. And again, this is an important worldview claim. Uh, other religions like Islam teach the holiness of God. God is holy and righteous and good. The Greeks taught the humanity of the gods. The gods are like us. But Christianity teaches that a holy God took on flesh. The word took on flesh. And this doesn't show that our world is wonderful. It shows that the word is humble. And so Philippians 2.6 teaches... Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The word who made the whole world was prepared to become a person like us. This is true reality behind appearances. In the beginning was the word, rational, truthful, God's self-expression, but more incredibly than that, the Word became flesh. And then those two things come together in verse 17. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So we'll just quickly talk about the tabernacle before we finish. If we go back a few verses, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt or, or tabernacled among us. The word dwelt is the word tabernacled. In the Old Testament, God's presence was with his people in this thing called the tabernacle, like a tent where God's presence was with them. When Jesus enters the world, it's like the tabernacle, but better. In the next chapter, Jesus will compare himself to the temple, another place where God's presence dwells in this, holy, in this unholy, rebellious world. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he, the Word, has made him known. A temple or a tabernacle is like seeing Mars from Earth with the naked eye on a cloudy day. If you get everything right, you can get a glimpse. But Jesus is like the Mars rover. 
right? It's a wholly different level of presence and access. So he is called Emmanuel, God with us. You can see Jesus in this gospel. You can meet him as we keep reading this book together. You can hear him, see his words, observe his actions, his death on the cross, which shows the glory of God and his humility more than anything else. Uh, they used to drop pamphlets on Nazi Germany during the war. Pamphlets that said, stop fighting, give up, you're going to lose. Jesus has dropped pamphlets on the kingdom of darkness. Stop fighting, give up, you're going to lose. But you still need a miracle to come to grips with what he has to say. And so this really short passage has the whole history of the universe, it has God, it has God becoming flesh. And in this story, the whole Old Testament does one thing. The Old Testament just points to Jesus. It lacks any independent function apart from pointing to Jesus and Jesus replaces Moses. Verse 16, from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. The law, the Old Testament was given through Moses Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The Word of God does what the law could not do. A final anecdote, and you haven't heard this one before. Uh, the Canadian biblical scholar Don Carson tells his story. A Pakistani Muslim was reading John, this book that we're reading with, with him. He wasn't converted. He was still on Team Darkness. And Carson took this man to the Canadian Parliament. And in the Parliament of Canada, they have Moses, they have Aristotle, they have Socrates, up in sculptures, I think, or something like that. And on the tour, the guide said, these figures represent that in which our, our government and our systems of thought are built. Our society, you know, Aristotle, our, our government is based on knowledge. Socrates, our government is based on wisdom. Moses, our government is based on law. And the Pakistani Muslim who just started reading John said, where is Jesus Christ in the Canadian parliament? And the guy looked a bit shocked. And the uh, Pakistani Muslim says, where is Jesus Christ? The, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You see, the Pakistani Muslim understood why Jesus is so far superior to any other option. And shortly afterwards, the Pakistani Muslim became a Christian. He knew about law, that law is common in worldviews and systems of thought. He knew about God. God is, is common in worldviews and systems of thought. He knew about judgment, but he'd never heard about the Incarnation of a holy God taking on flesh. He'd never heard about this sort of humility, to die for God-directed rebels. Verse 1 is an incredible verse. The Word made your world, and He made you. But verse 14 is even more incredible. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And our world needs to hear about this kind of grace and this kind of truth. What is behind the appearances of our world and our lives? Jesus. 
And what's he like? He's a humble, loving Savior. Let's pray. Dear God, please bring all of us to the truth and take us out of the darkness of our own rebellion against you and help us to love you, the humble Savior of the world. Amen.